0: Well, welcome everybody. We're glad that you're here with us today. I'm in the habit of praying before I speak, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your spirit. We are thankful for your church. And we ask this morning... That, Father, you would be at work as we continue in this atmosphere of worship and we read your word. May you, Father, be at work in the hearts and minds of your children today. God, even being bringing peace and strength and grace. And, Father, minister to your people through your word today as only you can. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, today uh, we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start digging into the text about verse 4 through verse 10 this morning. But this really is an incredible passage of scripture for us to be dealing with right now during this season of life. Our world right now is struggling with the coronavirus pandemic. And because of that, we're all separated from each other for a period of time. And we're going through all these things to do what we can, to to do what we call flatten the curve and so forth. And into that context, our passage of Scripture today has to do with the unity of the church and the victory of Jesus Christ. So I want to think, first of all, about unity. Now, we're used to the unity of the church being expressed when we have a chance to gather together. We literally sit next to each other in a room like this, and we sing together, and we worship together. But without that What do we mean by unity? How is it that God creates unity? And even more interesting in this passage, what is God doing with the unity of the church? It is important for us to learn, and I hope we're learning this right now, it is important for us to learn that our gathering is not what creates the unity of the church. Our gathering together is an expression of the unity of the church that the Spirit has already created. And part of what that means is that we can still act as the unified body of Christ even though for a period of time it looks different and we're physically separated from each other. This passage isn't just about unity. It is also about a victorious Christ, a triumphant and resurrected Jesus Christ and what that means for the church. So that resurrected Christ, it turns out, gives gifts to the church. And he gives those gifts and they are intended... To mature us, to grow us up into Christ, and to fill the world with His presence. And that's some pretty powerful stuff. So, this passage of Scripture that we're going to read this morning is going to show us this Gifts given by a victorious Christ unify the church and fill all things with Himself. Let me say that just one more time. Gifts given by a victorious Christ unify the church and fill all things with himself. Maybe we're separated for a season in order to learn some of these things, to to show us the presence and the power of God inside of our homes, inside of our families, inside of our individual lives in brand new kinds of ways. Maybe this is occurring, maybe part of what God is doing is that he's building inside of us a brand new taste for the unity of the church and for the kind of victory that Christ gives the church because of who he is. So guys, we're going to read some of this passage. I'm going to begin back in verse 1 of chapter 4. It's going to help us set the stage just a little bit. We'll start digging in in verse 4. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it goes like this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, with patience, Especially verses four through six, the very first thing that you recognize is that Paul repeats a piece of vocabulary over and over again. It's so important to him that seven times in three verses, Paul repeats that word one. He's concerned about the unity of the church. What forms that unity? What is at the foundation of the unity of the church? So it's one this and one this and one this. Now think back a little bit to some of the things that we've been through so far in the book of Ephesians and why this becomes so important to us right now. We think back to Ephesians chapter two and Paul tells us that outside of the church, The world builds these walls between people and separates us and divides us. And the world loves to do this. It compartmentalizes people. It literally looks at you and what you look like and what your bank account looks like and what your social status looks like. And it puts us in all of these compartments and then um, tells us this is who you are and this is what you were like. And so Paul says, but inside of the church, All of those walls are gone. There's actually hostility against that inside of the church. So outside of the church, there is this division. And inside of the church, all of that needs to be gone. So this unity is expressed in this fascinating way. And that thought moves into chapter 3. As Paul says, I become a minister of the mystery of the gospel. And the mystery is this that everybody belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. And God is using this church to display his wisdom to all of creation, including the supernatural realm. That's pretty powerful stuff for the church. So the unity of the church is an important thing for Paul and for the rest of us. So there were walls before we became a part of the church. And here in the church, those need to be gone. Before we became a part of the church, there are false hopes and temporary hopes, things in this world that tell us that we can put our trust in them, but that trust is easily broken or easily falls apart. And so in the church, there is one hope preached, one ultimate hope preached, and that is Jesus Christ. So we move from multiple false hopes to one foundational unshakable hope in Jesus Christ. And then Paul says in Ephesians, and he says in other books in the New Testament as well, you know, you guys all came from all these different religious and cultural and ethnic backgrounds, and you worship different gods, and your life looked different in significant ways, but now we're all part of the body of Christ, and what we're doing is we're worshiping the one true God together. These are the kinds of things that create unity inside of the body of Christ. So there's one, 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 one. It's important to Paul as you go through this passage. As I was walking through this idea, there's this psalm that talks about the unity of the people of God. And it's it's short and it's beautiful. And it talks about how precious it is. And the psalm uses this wonderful image to try to evoke how magnificent the unity of the body is. And it's Psalm 133. I'm just going to read through Psalm 133 for us. And it says this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is good and this is pleasant. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. Aaron, the the high priest, the representative of that relationship between God and his people It runs down his head, his beard, running down the collar of his robes. It covers God's people. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. It's like the rain that brings life. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. How precious it is when the body of Christ figures out what unifies it and lives there and works there. Because the psalmist says it is in that place where God pronounces this incredible blessing and it is life forevermore. What a beautiful thought there in Psalm 133. So Paul keeps talking to the church about its unity and about its role in God's plan. And this is interesting to me coming from the Apostle Paul who's a missionary who spent the last years of his life making sure he spread the gospel to as many people as possible, setting up churches and establishing elders and moving from town to town to town and so forth. For the Apostle Paul, it turns out that individual conversion was not the end goal. That's not the last thing he was concerned with. He wanted people to know Jesus Christ clearly, but The job was not done until individuals were part of a healthy and spirit-filled church. The job wasn't done until the church was established and the elders were trained and the rest of Paul's missionary team was sent back and forth to other cities and Paul would write these letters back to this church in Ephesus that he knew to encourage the church in certain ways. This this is the goal that Paul is after for individual Christians, to be a part of a healthy and spirit-filled body of believers. Remember again the story flow of Ephesians chapter 2. Chapter 2 tells us this, we were dead, God made us alive, God gives us a purpose, and then God puts us together to get that done. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God is rich in mercy, and he's the one who by his grace gives us the gift of salvation that we receive by faith. And then it says, and it turns out that you are God's workmanship, and you were made to do the things that he created you to do from before the foundation of the world. And then we're all pulled together to accomplish his purposes. So individual Christians, we're not little churches all unto ourselves, but we belong to God's universal church, the body of Christ around the world. And we express that belonging and we express that unity by actually being a part of a local church, even if that looks really different right now. In fact, for me, uh, the last couple of weeks have been fascinating as I have thought about what it means for living hope to be a church. And we miss these public gatherings, but the family, the spiritual family, becomes more and more important. The vision of what the spiritual family can accomplish together becomes even more motivating to me to see how that can work, to see how we might be able to actually foster that. So we haven't lost any of this right now. Hopefully, it's actually becoming a bigger vision for us. Hopefully it's actually blossoming for us what this can mean, even if it causes us to think in new kinds of terms. So the text is telling us, right, there's one body and there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, when Lord, when faith, when baptism. So our hope is now wrapped up in Jesus Christ. We're tempted by a lot of other places that want our hope that want us to put our ultimate sense of completion and capability into them. And what Paul is teaching us is that at the very center of this church, there's one hope, and it is Jesus Christ. Now, during this pandemic, I think one of the things that we see is how quickly even the most powerful institutions that we can muster come to the limits of their ability. Now we want them to work well and we want them to do what they're supposed to do and we want it to be as effective as possible, but we discover very quickly how much these institutions in our world can do. So hopefully one of the things that's doing is it's pressing us further and further into Jesus Christ, realizing again that our one and only ultimate hope is in Christ. So as a church, We can put everything else in our world into its appropriate place under Christ. What money can do for us needs to fit under Christ. Education, politics, even family, when Christ is at the center, those things do what they're supposed to do when Christ is our ultimate hope. And he says says here there's one baptism, one Lord, one faith, and baptism is an interesting thing in this context. The act of baptism is this expression that we belong to the family of God, that we do in front of other people. It's not just something physical that we do. It's something public that we do. And this is going to be a cool thing that we can do when we come back together again. We fill the baptismal tank, and every time we do this as Living Hope Church, we make a point of saying, this is celebration. So we cheer and we clap and we have a great time because this is big stuff. There's one baptism. It's a physical act, but it's a public act, saying that I belong to this church, this one church of God. And we worship this one God, the one true God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. And quite honestly, guys, where else would we go? What else is there worth living for? What else is there in this world worth glorifying I can't think of something else that is worth my life's praise and work, but God in God alone. Now, don't get me wrong. During this kind of season, we pay close attention to compassion, and we pay close attention to whatever kind of hospitality we can show, and we really should do that, and we can continue to do that. But we should also bring our minds to dwell on the nature and the character of the God that we worship. Guys, we are not just people who believe in the effectiveness of kindness. We are people who believe in the power of God. Both of these things are important, but in the end, our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. I came across this quote recently. Someone, uh, someone once said, we know our anxiety less when we know our Father more. I like that. We know our anxiety less when we know our Father more. And what that reminds me of are a lot of David's Psalms. When David is running for his life, when David has sinned, when David's life is on the precipice of being taken from him, he'll write these psalms to God lamenting and he'll bring his needs before God and he openly expresses, my enemies are all around me, my life is on the edge. But in every one of those psalms, David goes to who God is. He never loses sight of the character and nature of God even in his most anxious and frightening moments. God is my refuge, he is my portion in life, he says in Psalm 142, while he's stuck in a cave hiding for his very existence. We can't lose sight of who God is. So Paul says, God is over all and in all and through all. And this is his poetic way, if you will. This repeating and this overlapping of phrases to make sure that we hear this, that we get this, that God is supreme, that God is all-powerful, that God is still today Lord over all human history. He's over all and in all and through all. So even in this world today, as we step out in compassion and prayer, sometimes in new and creative ways, we do so as people who are gifted by a powerful God and a victorious Christ. The things that we have in our hands and in our lives come from a Christ who is ruler over all things. So let's read the rest of this passage, uh, verses uh, seven through 10. So Ephesians four, seven through 10 goes like this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, this is an incredible passage of scripture all by itself, and it's not always easy to understand, but let's put it into a little bit of its context. It begins with this thought in verse 7 that Christ is giving gifts to his church. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So who is this Christ and what are these gifts like? Well, the next couple of verses tell us this one thing. Whatever the details mean exactly, here's the one thing that is absolutely clear in the rest of those verses. Christ won and he gives gifts to his church. Christ won. He ascended on high and he led a host of captives, and he's the one who gives gifts to men. He ascended, he descended to the lower parts of the earth, and this is the one who rises again from the grave and gives his gifts to the church. Now, this is a pretty powerful thought. The Christ is one, and he gives his kinds of gifts to the church. The cosmic victor over death and our enemy has gifts to give his children, his church, Now these gifts carry with them the presence and the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Um, What other kinds of powerful gifts are there? Who else can give gifts like this to anybody but the Christ who has ruled over all? So the text here that we read is full of this language of Christ has descended and ascended and what does it mean that he did this if he didn't do this before? Here's part of what's going on in this passage. In verse 8, Paul cites Psalm 68, verse 18. Now, if you go back there into Psalm 68, 18, you're going to recognize that it's not a quote from that. What Paul does is this he takes what was a common rabbinical understanding of Psalm 68, an interpretation of that chapter, talking about the victory that God has over all things. He takes that and he paraphrases one verse out of Psalm 68 and puts it in this context to express the same thing, God's victory over all things. So he's speaking of Christ now here in Ephesians chapter 4. Christ has ascended, but what does that mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. So when Paul uses that language, it's a phrase that his readers would have immediately understood as Hades. Right? So this, this is a curious passage of scripture, that Christ himself hasn't just descended from heaven on earth in his incarnation, but has descended into hell itself. But scripture teaches us this, that Christ descends into death and hell. He takes the keys or the power of death as his own and rises from the dead. So there's our big idea, that Christ is one. He's defeated all of these enemies of ours. So the second member of the Trinity Descends in the incarnation. God, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, takes on flesh and dwells with us. But then he dies on the cross. He descends and he rises again from the grave. This is an important thought. Christ has conquered every power on earth and in hell. Christ has conquered every one of those powers. And that's why these gifts are so incredible. And it's just incredible that that God decides to give his church, people like us, his gifts to fill the world with himself and to bring us into maturity in him. So in the context of the church, here's the thought that is part of the flow of what we've been reading so far in chapter four. A unified church becomes an effective church. The rest of this section in chapter four are these the list of gifts. God gives these gifts to the church so that all of these things may take place. A unified church becomes an effective church, but all of this is possible because we are filled with God's spirit and our gifts are given to us by a resurrected and victorious Jesus Christ. So guys, during this time, we're paying attention to all sorts of things in this world and we're encouraging all kinds of Certain physical activities, avoiding certain physical activities, paying attention to good um, health-conscious kinds of activities and safety guidelines. We're paying attention to what relational generosity looks like now. And it's, it's different. It's phones and texts and email and social media. It's just different than it used to be. And we, we're paying attention to that. It's important to pay attention to that. But I want to make sure we don't lose sight of this. In the end, guys, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. We need to learn from David that even in our anxiety and confusion and difficulty, we have to remind ourselves of who God is. We need to know that he is the foundation of the church, he is the one who fills the church with his gifts, and he is the one victor over all. Let's pray. God, I ask for this kind of grace and peace upon your people this morning. Father, that your word has been given to us and your word is not shaken by any circumstance in our lives or in our world. It is still your word to your church today. Help us to hear it that way. May your spirit speak it to us that way. And God, may there be peace and grace in our homes and lives. And God, may, may there be a renewed sense of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ today, filled with with the one spirit that unifies us and filled with the gifts that our risen Savior gives. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen.